I'm here, but I'm trying not to choke on a peanut in a Snicker bar. Because y'all don't want me angry. Because I'm telling you, I get hangry. I it, When I travel, my assistant has to put on the calendar reminders to eat. Because when I travel and I get busy, I'll just forget to eat. It's a great weight loss program. I just forget to eat, and then I become a raging SOB. I mean, I just get mean. And I'm not a mean person. I'm a fairly laid-back, even-heeled person. I get it honest, though. My dad was the same way. Most laid-back person on planet Earth. But when he gets hungry... He just has a ferocious temper, and I do too, and I can feel like I need to just get a Snicker bar in me so I didn't get hangry. You know, my son gets, we call it sagry at our house. He gets deeply, despondently sad when he's hungry, like really hungry. He like really gets sad. Me, I mean, I'm just a jerk. I I, I really, I get snappy, and, and people don't like to be around me when I'm hungry. So I was inhaling a Snicker bar during commercial break, trying not to choke on the peanuts so that I can make it through this next hour because then I have to go to a meeting and then another meeting and then I get to go to a Braves game, which I'll eat something at the stadium, might get a cigar before, definitely get a cigar after, but it's going to be a long night. It was a long night yesterday too. Now, I need to move on. This is infuriating. And it's one of those stories. Okay, so let me go back. If you're just tuning in, it is Eric Erickson, the phone number 877-973-7425. At the very end of the last hour, I was talking about uh, the mask mandates in California. There's really not any scientific dispute that if everybody wears a mask, everybody at all times wears a mask, it diminishes transmission of viruses, including COVID. The problem is, as we learned in this country, not everybody's going to do it. And in states where there were universal mask mandates, what they found is that uh, the one place people weren't wearing masks was in their houses, and that's where they were getting it. They would have small groups to their houses, and they would spread COVID around. So they really didn't work. Masks do work, but mask mandates don't. And increasingly, the masks don't work at all unless they're in 95 masks. The particulate size by which the virus can spread is now so small that it penetrates through cloth masks very easily. Originally, remember, the virus has mutated steadily to try to spread. And originally, the particulate necessary from your mouth, the water vapor necessary, the size of the particulate had to be larger than it does now. Now it's essentially an airborne virus. And gravity doesn't immediately pull it down. The particulate's so small, and so it spreads easy. I know a lot of people in the last few weeks who have gotten COVID, and they haven't done anything risky. They haven't, uh, they've just gone out and about their normal routine that they've had for a while. Uh, they haven't taken extra precautions, but they haven't been less precautious, and suddenly they're getting it because the virus has mutated. And now a lot of people are wearing N95 masks. On occasion, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but on occasion you see them, but most people don't fit them properly, and if they're not fitted properly, they don't work either. So you might as well just give up. Get your vaccine, get your booster, and then if you get COVID, which you'll probably get, uh, you'll have diminished or de minimis impact. I may very well have gotten COVID. I might have gotten it multiple times as far as I know, but I've never had a symptom. Never have I had a symptom of COVID. 
talking to my buddy Rich McCormick, who's going to Congress. He's an ER doctor. He says, yeah, I might have had it 12, 15 times. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. Um, he just says, I've never gotten sick from it at all. Working in an ER, never had symptoms. And neither have I. And I assume I just got it, didn't even know I had it, so I never even bothered to get tested. And I, I guess I had it, but I don't know that I had it. My wife got it. My wife got sicker from the vaccine than she got from COVID. The vaccine left my wife in agony in bed for a week. COVID left my wife exhausted for three days with a runny nose. And she's got lung cancer. But what we know now is that mask mandates aren't working in San Francisco with universal mask compliance in areas of California where no one wore masks, the viral spread rate was identical to areas where there were mask mandates. It's not working. And by now we know this, or we should know this. We should understand masks aren't working. The virus has mutated, and there are so many places where you don't have to wear a mask that you're getting the COVID there, and so the mask doesn't matter, and you're spreading it even wearing a mask because the particulate is so small it's releasing through the mask, or your N95 is fitted poorly, so you're still releasing the virus. These are things we should know. These are things we're supposed to know. When we follow the science, we're supposed to realize these things. Now, I say all of this because there are a lot of people who have denied the whole time masks were ever any good, and actually I'm not one of those people. I think that they were good at first, but as the virus mutated and the particulate got smaller, the data changed, and we've had to change with the data. But there is one area where it should have been a no-brainer. And this is another reason I had to go have my snicker bar so I don't get hangry or angry because this is the sort of stuff that just really hacks me off. David Leinhart, Leon Hart at the New York Times. New research is showing the high costs of long school closures in some communities. When COVID-19 began to sweep across the country in March of 2020, schools in every state closed their doors. Remote instruction effectively became a national policy for the rest of that spring. A few months later, however, school districts began to make different decisions about whether to reopen. Across much of the South and the Great Plains, as well as some pockets of the Northeast, Schools resumed in-person classes in the fall of 2020. Across much of the Northeast, Midwest, and West Coast, school buildings stayed closed and classes remained online for months. These differences created a huge experiment, testing how well remote learning worked during the pandemic. Academic researchers have since been studying the subject and have come to a consistent conclusion. Remote learning was a failure. Three times a year, millions of K-12 students in the U.S. take a test known as the MAP that measures their skills in math and reading. A team of researchers at Harvard Center for Education Policy Research have used the MAP's results to study learning during the two-year period starting in the fall of 2019 before the pandemic began. 
The researchers broke the students into different groups based on how much time they had spent attending in-person school during the 2020-2021 academic year with the most variation in whether schools were open. On average, students who attended in-person school for nearly all of 2020-2021 lost about 20% worth of a typical school year's math learning during the study's two-year window. Some of those losses stem from the time the students had spent learning remotely during the spring of 2020, when school buildings were almost universally closed. Some of the losses stemmed from the difficulties of in-person schooling during the pandemic as families coped with disruption and illness. But students who stayed home for most of 2020-2021 fared worse. On average, they lost the equivalent of 50% of a typical school year's math learning during the study's two-year window. The findings are consistent with other studies. It's pretty clear remote learning was not good for learning, said Emily Oster, Brown University economist and co-author of the study. Matthew Chingos, an Urban Institute expert, put it this way, students learned less if their school was remote than they would have in person. One of the most alarming findings is that school closures widened both economic and racial inequality in learning. I told you the other day how much progress K-12 education had made in the U.S. during the 90s and early 2000s. Math and reading schools approved, especially for black and Latino students. The COVID closures have reversed much of that progress. Low-income students, black and Latino students fell further behind over the last two years relative to high-income white and Asian students. And by the way, this writer of the New York Times goes on to point out that major cities run by Democrats, the education success of the students is far worse than in Republican areas because Democrats were far more aggressive in keeping schools closed than Republicans were. Y'all, I told you so. But you didn't need me to tell you so because you knew it too. We all knew this. The only people who did not know this were the teachers' unions who now pretend they never did such a thing, who now pretend they never actually closed schools. Yes, they did. They lobbied aggressively for closing schools because the teachers' unions put teachers and what teachers wanted ahead of students, as they always do. And the result, the result is that the students were put in harm's way. The students had their educations degraded. The students fell behind. And the teachers just got a lot of vacation. And now you know what's going to happen. The next thing that's going to happen is deeply foreseeable. They're going to start demanding bailouts and affirmative action for kids who grow up and fell behind and gave up and walked out of school because they lost hope. They're, they're, you know they're going to do it. You and I both know they're going to do this. They're going to say, well, these kids, it's a racial and income inequality issue. There's a gap. There's an education gap. 
And it's their policies that did it, and they're going to refuse to accept it, and they're going to demand some sort of taxpayer reparation to these kids because their policies screwed these kids up. You know it's going to happen. They're going to try to punish all of us for their failures. They've already punished these kids, and now they're going to try to make these kids dependent on government programs because these adults screwed up the kids. And instead of trying to fix that problem, they're just going to use government subsidy to try to pay off the kids. Sorry we ruined your life. Here's Uncle Sam's man boob. That's what they're going to do. You know it. You know it. You know exactly that's what they're going to do. And they're going to scream about inequality and unequal outcomes and how unfair it is. And then they want to punish the private school kids. You know, up in northern Virginia, the Loudoun County area, they decided to go after parents who hired tutors for their kids when schools were shut down. That's what they did. And then they labeled the parents who complained about it and fought back as domestic terrorists. That's what they did. You know what we should do in this country is shut down all the public schools. Give all the parents money. Say, send your kid to the school of your choice and watch a thousand flowers bloom. Watch watch all the, the new private schools start up taking the government money. Maybe in one-room schoolhouses, but you'll get a better education in a one-room schoolhouse where the older kids are helping the younger kids with a single school marm teacher like they had in the Old West than they would in no school with remote learning. We have fundamentally forgotten that kids deserve a good education, not indoctrination, but an education. They shut these schools down. They left those kids hanging. And now we're going to pick up the pieces in society. As society around us collapses, and we knew all along this was going to happen, and they chose to ignore us. Listen, I realize it's a podcast ad, but it's also true. I do sleep under bowl and branch sheets every night. They are noticeable, distinct there. They've got a great weight to them. They've got a great softness to them, and they get softer over time. They use the best 100% organic cotton threads on the planet for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They're soft to start with. They get softer. They've also got a great weight. They're not too light. They're not too heavy. They keep you cool in the summer, warm in the winter. They're just perfect sheets, really. They use the highest quality threads there are. They're beloved even by three U.S. presidents. They got over 10,000 stellar reviews. And you can feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets pretty immediately. Bullen Branch even gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. The annual summer event is starting soon, but Bullen Branch is giving you guys exclusive early access before anyone else to 20% off with promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, at BullenBranch.com. It is their best offer of the year before the holidays, so you need to act now. Again, you guys, my listeners of The Eric Erickson Show, get this exclusive early access, and you get to save 20% with promo code ERIC. It's Bolland Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code is ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, for 20% off. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on this program, delighted to have you. Republicans are plotting revenge on the January 6th committee. 
I can't say I really blame him. By the way, uh, Pat Cipollani, the president's lawyer, has uh, found some compromise plan in order to be able to um, testify, which is interesting because they got to get around executive privilege with him. So it's going to be interesting to listen to what he has to say. But key House Republicans are threatening to subpoena the records of the January 6th committee if <laughs> if when when it's a better word when the GOP retakes the majority an escalation of the party's effort to undercut the investigation's findings fresh talk of 2023 subpoenas following the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony means the committee's final report expected this fall may be far from the last word Ever since the January 6th committee subpoenaed Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, Republicans have been threatening to subpoena the committee in retaliation. The hearings painted a damning portrait of Trump with aides testified against him. Republicans are eager to move beyond it and cast doubt on it. Can I be honest with you? This is going to get me in trouble with some of you. Pull back the curtain. Let you peek behind the curtain. I've talked a little bit about January 6th, including the the um, way so many people debunked some of the stuff Cassie Hutchins said, Hutchinson said. I haven't spent a ton of time on the January 6th committee because I don't think most people care. Now, some of you will get mad at me for saying that because you really believe in your heart of hearts that this matters deeply. And I absolutely am on record condemning what happened January 6th. I think it's bad, but I think this committee is is mostly for show. I don't think it's really there for fact-finding. I don't think they would have rushed Cassidy Hutchinson or uh, sat on their hands and refused to hear from the Secret Service agents who debunked her if it wasn't for show. I think it's for show. But also, it's the same reason I don't talk about Hunter Biden. Nobody cares about Hunter Biden except for people who already hate the Democrats. I mean, it's a story that matters. I think it is. It's a story that shows the Biden team lied. They are corrupt. Hunter Biden cashed in on his dad's name. The media covered it up. I think it matters. So I've talked about it some, like I've talked about January 6th, but nobody really cares outside of the hardcore partisans. If you hate Joe Biden, you care about Hunter Biden. If you hate Donald Trump, you care about January 6th. But if you're just sitting on the sidelines trying to make ends meet, steer your family through life and pay attention to the news, you really don't give a crap about either one of these stories. Yeah, everything about the Hunter Biden story confirms for you that the Biden family is corrupt and everything about January 6th confirms for you that you either set it out or you voted for Joe Biden. You weren't going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, you are affirmed in your worldview about each, but you're ready to move on. Outside of the hardcore partisans, these stories don't matter, which is why I just don't talk a ton about them. Because there's nothing I need to say to my friends on the right about Hunter Biden that you don't already agree with. It's a, it, He's a, a pitiful individual who traded on his dad's name, is corrupt and corrupting, and his family is is no better than he is. But how are we going to persuade people to vote for our side by screaming about Hunter Biden? You're not. You think you are, but you're not. And you Democrats, you, you, you think January 6th was awful, as do I. 
You think Donald Trump instigated it, as do I. You think you're going to persuade a bunch of people to vote against Republicans because of it? You're stupid. You're stupid. If you really think that a bunch of people are going to vote against Republicans over January 6th, you're stupid, and I have a bridge to sell you. It's not anything that matters to normal people in normal America. The fact that people obsess about it on social media suggests people on social media are not very normal and are distracted from the real-world concerns of people trying to fill up their car with gas, and they don't make enough money anymore to keep filling their car up with gas because Joe Biden's economy sucks. That matters. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I got to play y'all some audio. I meant to play earlier. We're going full circle. This is all news to Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. Um, and then there's a Reuters report um, out this morning that says that more than 5 million barrels of oil that were released from the emergency of oil reserves were exported to Europe and Asia last month, and some of it reportedly was actually heading to China. Uh, is the administration aware of those reports, and um, you know, does, it, does the president mind that some of this oil that was meant to uh, ease pain for consumers is headed overseas? I have not seen that report, so I would honestly have to go look into it and see what what the truth is in that in that uh, statement that you just laid out and see exactly what's happening. I, I just have not seen that report. She has not seen the reporting. Oh, wait, there's more. The G7, um, there's video of the French president running up to President Biden and, and relaying a message saying that the Saudis are about at capacity uh, through the UAE. Um, did President Biden ask the French to ask the Saudis to pump more oil through the UAE? Uh, I did not hear this conversation, so I can't speak to that conversation. Uh, what? I heard the conversation. I played the conversation on this here radio program. I mean, I literally played the conversation on this program, and she's like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I did not hear the conversation. Oil prices are back on the rise after sliding for a few days, and it might be on the back of this. By the way, this was yesterday, later in the day, at the G7 meetings in Germany. We're going to show you the video and some of the sound. French President Emmanuel Macron kind of rushing in and actually sort of interrupting President Biden. He was with Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. And Macron sort of jumping in, all by the way, in front of reporter cameras and hot microphones, and, and maybe that wasn't an accident. And Macron saying that the Saudis and the UAE have little to no spare capacity to increase oil production. Watch and listen. One, I'm at the maximum, maximum, what he claims, and this is my ticket commitment. Second, for me, according to us, the Saudis can increase a little bit, but 150 or a little bit more, and they, they don't have huge capacities at this stage, before six months' time. That was Emmanuel Macron. I don't have to go in there. I played that audio for you on June 28th, which means it happened on June 27th. We're now on July 6th, and the White House press is like, I don't know. I never heard about this. How is she so bad at her job? It's almost like they decided they wanted to pick her because they could have their first black lesbian press secretary for historicity, but they didn't care that she was incompetent at her job. Good gracious. How do you not know this and the rest of the world does? And then there's Pete Buttigieg. 
We should be acting as a country to reduce costs in areas that are, frankly, easier uh, for policymakers to control. The cost of insulin, the cost of prescription drugs, where we're really pushing for uh, uh, legislation that would reduce that, that cost. Uh, making sure that we act on the president's proposal to lower the cost of child care, lower the cost of, of, of elder care. A lot of things that we could be doing right now that would be durable and make a huge difference in families' pocketbooks, uh, in addition to the immediate steps that are being taken to try to keep gas prices under control. The other thing that continues, we think, to be very important is to hold oil companies accountable. Uh, you know, uh, just about everybody in this country is frustrated with the extraordinarily high price of gas, except for oil executives who've made it clear they're not going to invest in production when they're as profitable as they are. That's why the president has called for use it or lose it rules, that if an oil company is just sitting on production permits or, or leases and not using it to, uh, to do the kind of production that could lower the cost of oil, that they're held accountable for that. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's not that they're profitable now. It's that it takes 20 years to make their money back. And Biden and boot edge edge are saying that they got to wrap up their oil industry business within the next decade. So why would you invest in new stuff? I mean, that's just kind of common sense here, but y'all, we, we, you know what boot edge edge so the reason I say boot edge edge is because when he was running for president, that's what his campaign said is, is that the way you pronounce his name is boot edge edge. It's Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but you know what he's really concerned with? Do you know what Pete Buttigieg says is the number one thing his office is focused on right now? I'm not making that up. It is the number one thing the Department of Transportation is investing in right now, not port backups. Nope. Not oil. Nope. Not not pilot shortages. Nope. Not not FAA shortages. Nope. Do you know what the number one outrage that must be fixed is? Your roads are racist. Did you know you are on a racist road? When you run your car over the road, that road noise, you know it's it's making the, the mm sound. Mm -hmm. The road's trying to say the word. It's, it's proof of its racism. It's a racist road. Pete Boot Edge Edge is ready to combat your racist roads and the black asphalt on which you drive. Pete Boot Edge Edge, he is on it. The mayor of South Bend, Indiana, whose claim to fame was filling potholes as mayor, is going to fix your racist road. Now, what is he going to do? Send them to indoctrination camp? No. Paint them white? Well, no. I mean, that would that would exacerbate the white privilege of the country. Nope. He's going to pay reparations to the cities that f are fed up with their racist roads. Now, this is actually somewhat of a serious topic, but it's perverse that the Department of Transportation thinks this is the biggest issue in America. I want to explain this to you. We're having been flippant, having laughed about it. There actually is an issue in the country, if we're honest and fair about it. 
I live in Macon, Georgia. I live on the very north end of Macon, Georgia from – look, I mean, for people in, in the Atlanta area, they're like, I can't believe you live all the way down there. It literally takes me an – on a regular – like today, it took me an hour, 10 minutes to get to my office. I mean, that's like living 10 miles from my office if I live on the north side of the city. I mean, it is – it's a lot easier for me on the south side of, of Atlanta to get into Atlanta than it is for people on the north side of Atlanta because there are so many people on the north side. You live half the distance and take twice as long. I'm fine down there. We, we love our church. We love our school. We love our friends. We don't want to move. But I was on city council in Macon. And Macon, Georgia, I-75 cuts through it. Y'all know if you live in the east, you're familiar with I-95. I-95 runs up the eastern seaboard from South Florida all the way up to New England. Well, the next one over is 75. And I-75 goes really, it cuts across uh, from Miami, the Fort Lauderdale area, up then on the western part of the Florida Peninsula, up through Tampa, goes up through Orlando, into Georgia from Valdosta, goes through Macon, Atlanta, cuts to Chattanooga, and then it bends to the east and goes up to Knoxville, and then it goes up into Lexington, Kentucky, and into Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio. I mean, I-75 is basically, I mean, it's the Erickson Affiliate Road. I got Dayton in there. I got Orlando in there. I got uh, Atlanta in there. It goes all the way up, all the way up to the Upper Peninsula, all the way up to Canada. And when it came through a lot of places in the South, along with a lot of other interstates, but let me deal with Macon, Georgia. The city of Macon, Georgia, had a choice. There was a very prosperous neighborhood called Pleasant Hill and a very prosperous neighborhood called uh, Shirley Hills. Pleasant Hill was black. Shirley Hills was white. You know Shirley Hills, or you know Pleasant Hill, rather. You may not think you know Pleasant Hill, but you do indirectly because you know who came from there. James Brown, Otis Redding. Lena Horne didn't come from there, but she moved down there to build her music career. A lot of famous black musicians came from Pleasant Hill. James Brown's house is still there. Otis Redding's family still lives in town. And when they were building 75 out of Atlanta, headed south towards Macon, the all-white Department of Transportation could have put I-75 between Shirley Hills and Pleasant Hill. Could have actually divided it, but it would have been more costly because of the geography, the river, the cemetery that was there in, in middle Georgia. So they bulldozed right through the middle of Pleasant Hill, right through the middle, gutted that neighborhood, built just a, a, a grand canyon of asphalt shutting off families from each other. For years in Macon, there's this house. It's called the Half House. Its decay is still there. Do you know why they call it the Half House? They call it the Half House because the Department of Transportation and the interstate builders 
they needed half of that house for the right-of-way for the interstate. And so they chopped off half the house, boarded up that half, and they never compensated the family. They said, we, we didn't take your house. They didn't compensate them. They took half of the house. They didn't compensate them. That house stood there for a very long time with the family living in half of the house. It's a true story. It is a real issue. It is a real issue, but it's also an issue that over time has been resolved. They're not going to tear up the interstates through Pleasant Hill. But you know what they did? You know what they're doing? They're building new bridges. They built new pedestrian bridges. They built uh, new right-of-ways. They built new sound walls. They couldn't fix what was done by the racists in the 50s, but they've ameliorated it as best they could. And by the way, the societal fallout in that neighborhood had nothing to do with the interstate coming through ultimately. There are other neighborhoods in town that are just as bad, if not worse, that didn't have an interstate come bulldozing through. But for some reason, we're told that these communities fell apart because they divided the neighborhood with the interstate. Well, yeah, they did back in the 50s and 60s, but time heals all wounds, including that. And now you've decided to focus on this as a way to show the injustice in the past and also as a way to, to fester grievance. It's true. Road projects in many places around the country and not just in the South, a lot of it happened in the North, were white neighborhoods dividing themselves up from black neighborhoods so that they didn't have to deal with those black neighbors anymore. I mean, think about Detroit. Now, what's the road in Detroit that was... Oh, is it 10-mile road or something like that? Yes, a 10-mile road. It divided that whole area. You can tell white and black communities by the divisions of that road. Or is it 7-mile? I can't remember. One of those big roads up there. And it divided up the whole neighborhood. It divided them black and white. That was in the north, wasn't it, in the south? It was willfully done. That's where they were doing a, red, a lot of redlining in Detroit back in the day, depriving black homeowners of loans. It wasn't in the South. It was up there. But they would prefer that you fixate on the South and the grievance in the South. There are real problems. There are things that need to be done. But also time heals all wounds. And all you're doing is making stuff fester. You're trying to right wrongs that were righted already so that you can claim some legacy that you can run on for president of the United States. Meanwhile, you know what the black families in these neighborhoods need? Baby formula, gas, supplies at the grocery store, lower prices. But yet you can't focus on the basics. you got to focus on the symbols. And an administration and a Department of Transportation that are focusing on the symbols as opposed to the realities – is an administration and a Department of Transportation that isn't going to fix anything for you or me. We're going to have to do it ourselves in large part by voting Republican in November and beginning the investigations and asking the tough questions. I mean, just look at what's happening with your 401k and your IRA. We're having more and more people out there talk about the market still has, well, room to fall. Markets are doing good today, but it's kind of an anomaly lately. 
You might want to reach out to my friends at Goldco and see if they can work with you on your retirement. You got 40-year high inflation, interest rate hikes, gas prices going up. You got $50,000 or more in your IRA, your 401k, or other savings. Your money could be at risk, and you don't have a lot of options. But you can protect your money with physical gold and silver. Call Gold Co. at 855-904-5933. You'll get a free wealth protection kit. Learn how to use gold and silver to protect and grow your money. Thousands of retirees are protecting their retirement savings. Many are getting $10,000 or more in free silver for doing it. Call Gold Co. Find out if they're a good fit for you. Find out if you qualify for their special offer. At least get their free wealth protection kit. It's 855-904-5933. Or better yet, just text my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K to 33777. You text recipe there, you text data there, you text show there, text Eric there to 33777. I will send you back Gold Coast toll-free number. Get their free wealth protection kit. Learn how to use gold and silver to protect and grow your money. Find out if you qualify for their great offers and see if they're a good fit for you in helping mitigate the ebbs and flows of the market with your portfolio. You want to think about your retirement, think about partnering with Gold Co. Text Eric to 33777. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Yes, I'm headed to a Braves game again tonight. I went last. I got I to gotta make up for it. I, every year I say I'm going to go to more games. And then I get busy and, and living south of the city. It just gets difficult to go. So I don't go and, and I've wanted to go. So I'm going. Thank you, Priority Jet, by the way, for um, taking me last night. Um, I feel like I should say that because uh, Chandler there, nice guy, he sat in their seats going tonight. Uh, one day, I hope to be in a position to be able to fly on their plane wherever I want to go, like down to Orlando with my family. We'll see one day. Aspirational goals, people, I tell you. Once you do it, it just is hard to go back to Delta. But Delta, I'll be on a lot next week because i got to fly to Las Vegas and to Park City, Utah. Not for fun. My gosh, the amount of conference calls I've been on the last 48 hours over what I got to do next week. So I'm going to Las Vegas Freedom Fest, biggest right of center conference on the planet. Happens in Las Vegas every summer when it's nice and hot outside. And so everybody stays inside and stays at the conference. And I'm like doing, I'm moderating a panel. I'm speaking on two panels. I got to do a book sign. And then I got to go right over to Park City, Utah to all the groups that won the religious liberty cases in the Supreme Court. They want me to speak on a panel there with Judge Stark and Starr, the Whitewater prosecutor. Uh, so I got to do that. So next week is going to be a whirlwind trip right now. Uh, mystery cargo, get this senior Iranian and Venezuelan officials are traveling around the world on a cargo plane. Argentina detained them, but eh, we don't really quite understand exactly what is going on. Um, this is a little bit concerning, and we're trying to figure this out. The U.S. intelligence agencies are trying to figure out exactly why the Iranians and the Venezuelans are sharing a cargo plane, flying around the world, dropping stuff off in various places. We should try to figure out what this is. Maybe more on this tomorrow. It, it seems to be a very weird story the dispatch is reporting on. 